0: You're listening to the Captain's Coach Podcast, where we provide top insights into sports leadership and peak performance through interviews with some of the greatest team captains and thought leaders in the sports world. Now, here is your host, performance coach, speaker, and author, Ben Smith. I love you. Welcome back to another episode of the Captain's Coach Podcast. I'm the founder, Ben Smith, and we have a very special guest to bring you today in Dr. Anthony Pretkanis. But before I begin, I have good news and bad news. The good news is that I think that this might be one of the top three interviews I have done to date. There's some great content that we discuss over the course of an hour, such as how uh, learning magic can help you be a better influencer, the ethics of influence and how it's different from manipulation, Dr. Canis's five favorite social influence tactics to use, and some of the revolutionary behavior models that have come up within the past 10 years. But there are some bad news. Uh, my audio stopped recording about five minutes in, and we were pressed for time, so I wanted to continue the conversation and ended up having to record it on my phone. Uh, we unfortunately missed some great insights from him, but still got about 40 minutes worth of content. So I am excited to share that with you. And with that said, I will give you Dr. Canis's background. And he is currently an emeritus professor of psychology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where he studies social influence and persuasion, which he is considered amongst most of, uh, by most as a foremost expert in his field. He has appeared in the mass media over 500 times to include the Oprah Winfrey Show, Dateline, NBC, CBS, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, Times, and CNN. Uh, He is the co-author with Elliot Aronson of Age of Propaganda, a best-selling book. He has also worked with the U.S. military on the use of social influence in international conflicts. He is a proud member of an inner circle magic garage magician and a member of the International Brotherhood of Magicians, uh, which is pretty cool. And this is actually what we start the podcast off discussing. So without further ado, here's my talk with Dr. Anthony Pratkanis. Oh, cool. Well, uh, Dr. Anthony Pratt Canis, I'm excited to have you on to the show today. Welcome to the Captain's Coach podcast. i definitely excited again to talk about your expertise and behavioral and social influence. We've been in a in a series here on this podcast uh, where we've really been focused on you know, the science of behavior, trying to just kind of open a whole new world to some of the coaches that listen in about how they can better improve their performance and the behaviors of their players. And we have a lot of soldiers that listen into this show too. Um, so um, would, yeah, I would love to start with one thing that kind of jumped out at me. Firstly, when I was looking through your, your bio here was that you are a magician. And so that really was interesting. So I'd love if you could kind of start. I'd love to know a little bit more about how you got into that and, uh, you know, I have to follow up questions. But.
1: Yeah, you, you should uh, not ask because I'll it's like a, become a passion of mine and yeah. uh, pretty much dominates my life. <laughs> so I, uh, I joined a, a magic ring, the International Brotherhood of Magicians, uh, Ring 216, about six years ago. And it's become sort of, it's become a definite passion of mine. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing that's about interesting about magic is uh, it appeals to uh, me on a a broad range of dimensions. For one thing, it's a technology about how to deceive. So if you're interested in deception, whether it's military deception, or I do a lot of fraud cases, uh, economic fraud crimes and so forth, it has a lot of, of, of useful information on that front. For my character, I uh, play a, 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 a kind of a, a scoundrel, Doc Boodle, America's most beloved purveyor of fraudulent knowledge, and so I do things like the three shell game, fast and loose Monty, where we actually get into how to how to how to, how to take people, and so that's kind of what's intrigued me about the about magic. In addition, it is a, a performing art, so you know you get to have all the fun. Of you know, expressing your ideas through through magic.
0: Absolutely. So, would you say that it started as um, more of like a, as it sounds like it became more of a passion? But did you start it more on the on your your willingness to learn more about the deception aspect? Was it more for your research? Is that how it started?
1: That's it. Was actually for my teaching. Okay. So before I uh, became a you know official magician, uh, joining uh, you know the ring. I used to do magic tricks in a class called The Social Psychology of Flim Flam. And this was a course, it was a critical thinking course that I taught at the university where we go through how people believe, why they believe, how to, th- how to think scientifically about, uh, about everyday issues. And in that, I, got, I, got, I guess as a teacher, I got bored, <laughs> and so I said, well, you know, since we spent a lot of time going through things like Bigfoot and, and psychics and so forth, I will just pretend that I have psychic abilities. And so I went down to the magic shop and got, uh, you know, the little tricks and so forth to read people's minds. And it was it was, it was a lot of fun uh, pretending to be the only person in the world with psychic abilities and I'm going to debunk all the others. It became a, a kind of a running joke in the course, made it a lot more popular. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, so for instance, like the second time I, I read somebody's mind, it was a student, and I'm reading her mind. I said, you know, make sure you thought project up so I don't go into your into your thoughts too deeply. And then I said, oh my, that's what you did last summer? And her face went big red. And like the whole class kind of was giggling to that moment. Yeah, I said, wow, this is a powerful technology.
0: Wow, very interesting. I love that. Especially, you know, we always say that leadership is just, in many ways, just a performance art. And so I love that uh, this has really become something. I think it's really interesting, especially just when you're teaching people, it's all about engagement. So I can't think of anything better than a, than a magic show to try and engage the students to get them to, you know, to learn more effectively. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, how much has, uh, how much has this passion driven to like new thoughts and new ideas for the research that you've been um, you know, conducting? Yeah, it's, um,
1: magic has a large, you know, a large history of, of how to deceive what, what causes a person to think. Um, it's one kind of the magical moment where you sit there and all of a sudden, uh, I, can't, I can't explain what just happened to me. I can't explain what I just saw and how to create that moment. There's a large literature on magic theory. It goes back to the oh, before the beginning of the 20th century. And that's, I found that very, very helpful. It's also the other thing that it did in terms of my research, in terms of also understanding about deception, it changed the way I would look at... Um, propaganda, or, uh, you know, any kind of of deception, fraud cases, and so forth. So usually, you know, I still look at it this way, well, here's the techniques, here's the kind of social influences using, here's what's driving people. But as a magician, you you learn how to basically deceive somebody. And you realize that it's not exact, the important thing is not, everyone wants to know how the trick is done. That's really not the important thing. The important thing is all the little things that you do to sell that deception mm-hmm. and so when i started to see fraud and propaganda and so forth it caused me to look at it in a much different way i said well man how would i construct something like that and so you know, i would become more alert to little details that were happening in the fraud or the deceptive advertisement or the propaganda or whatever and so it heightened that awareness and you realize wow this person is really thinking through, you know, exactly all the little things they need to do to convince you.
0: Right. Yeah, that is brilliant. I think, um, what, what were, you, you talked about magic theory and you really said you dove into that. Are there anything, yeah, just for my own personal, where would I start with that? Like what was what were a top, was a topic or a book or a, uh, a right. blog that would be the best place to even start looking into something
1: like that? I, I would recommend going to your local magic uh, group and talking with them. Okay. Uh, so, for instance, in, in Silicon Valley here we have uh, an IBM ring, which, uh, which is. They're all throughout the through the country. Um, we also there's also a Society of American Magicians, SAM, and we have an assembly there. And I also go to a place called the Magic Garage, which is where I'm going to go after this phone call. <laughs> cool.
0: awesome. We'll
1: spend the evening. Uh, and there's when you really can learn magic. Yeah. Um, you know, there takes a lot of, um, um, you have to get feedback. It's not the kind of thing you can do alone. So if you're doing a magic trick, you may think you're doing it perfectly. But somebody else who's watching will say, no, you're not. I can catch you when you're doing the filing five things. And so it's a very collective enterprise
0: right.
1: and getting with a group of people to help you learn that and to, to get started is, is is highly recommended.
0: Yeah, I had seen that in your bio and that was again one of the first things that really jumped out to me and it's something that I've considered doing in the past randomly. Uh, I had, I've thought about it before and so really cool to hear somebody that's actually jumped in and, and done it. I think that it makes a lot of sense kind of wrapping this or should I say, bringing this full circle to some of the coaches that are listening in and some other, other leaders that we have. Um, it really would be useful as an icebreaker. Uh, it would help communicate ideas, and it's just a great way, again, like you've mentioned, to really engage an audience. What I would love to get into next here, in your bio, you mentioned uh, four or five different social tactics that are I guess some of your favorites such as the peak technique and alter casting and the one in five and uh, I know that a lot of us obviously could just Google those and get some answers uh, from Google but I would love to hear from your perspective and from your experience um, what those are uh, and if you could start with the peak technique uh, I'd love to hear more about that yes
1: so well, just a little, a little way of background um, I'm an experimental social psychologist and the paper I'm probably one of the papers I'm most known for is one on uh, where I listed and pulled together one hundred and seven different influence tactics that are used to persuade others. Uh, all these have been tested experimentally. And so when I'm looking at a persuasion situation, either how fraud kernel works or how we want to persuade somebody, for instance, in advocacy for for our country, what kinds of tactics that I could use and employ in that situation, mm-hmm. or it's being employed uh, against me. So the ones that you mentioned are ones that I happen to actually have studied uh, experimentally and kind of. Uh, uh, there, there were ones that I originated. In addition, there's a lot of others. You know, if you go read uh, Bob Cialdini's work, you'll yeah. you'll get six of them. Uh, yeah. There's a lot. There's others. So, what are some of the ones that are um, that you mentioned, that just to give people a flavor for how the tactics work? Uh, the peak technique was a uh, one where you just do something strange and unusual to break somebody's refusal script. And this was uh, I first encountered this. I was at a conference and I uh, happened to have NCAA tickets. The uh, Tar Heels were playing, so that was good. Unfortunately, they lost, and unfortunately, the seats were up in the nosebleed seats. Oh yeah, of
0: course. But anyway,
1: as I was going in to the to to the uh, to the stadium, the um, somebody comes up to me and says, "Excuse me, do you have seventeen cents?" Now all of a sudden, I start feeling myself go to my pocket <laughs> and start to pull out that seventeen cents. This is unusual for me, Ben, because that's not something. Somebody- I normally do. Yeah. And so I, I caught myself midstream. I said, wow, I never hardly ever do that. Why did that happen? And so when we got back to the university, I talked over to some of the students and so forth and said, you know, what is it about this 17 cents? So the first thing we did is we went out panhandling on the uh, Santa Cruz wharf and we asked for odd amounts, 17 cents versus 37 cents, any spare change versus uh, $0.25. Cents. And what you find is when you add that odd amount, you're going to get 55% more compliance. Mm. 55% more people are going to give for the 17 and the $0.37 cents request than the other two. And you're better off at, you're better off at $0.17 cents and $0.37. Cents, a smaller request works as well. Yeah. And, and the reason for this is <clears throat> most of us have a refusal script. When somebody comes up and says... Ah, can I have some money? Well, we know to, you know, turn our head, walk away, say something, but we have a way of refusing. When I say 17 cents, all of a sudden that script is disrupted. Why is he saying that to me? Mm. Why why is it something you need 17 cents for? Is it a cup of coffee? What is it? And now that person's real. It's an individual. And the script is broken. And you get more compliance. Uh, this kind of peak technique gets used in, um, that is crazy. other situations. Uh, it's a kind of, it's a staple of advertisement now where you have to, it, most of us have a refusal script when we're watching TV. We know, okay, here comes the ad. I have been do the 60 second, uh, nacho dash to <laughs> make sure I'm ready for the next set of ball game. Yeah. Uh, and we have that refusal. And so the, the advertisers have figured out how to, uh, break that script with, catch our attention with the latest song or
0: whatever is that is that kind of related to just the concept of thinking differently or just more so even just unexpected is that the unexpected the unexpectation i guess that's not the word but um...
1: yeah yeah i would see it as a two-step process one is uh it's unexpected it breaks the script well why why does this happen yeah and the second thing is is that in this particular case the 17 cents and others it starts to you start to start thinking positively about the situation, about the person who's asking. And you're sitting they're no longer oh, that's a bum. There's somebody who needs seventeen cents. Is it is this because of the bus? Well why exactly seventeen cents?
0: Yeah.
1: And so they're becoming an individual to you. Right. So it's a two step process. You know, I could spit on you or call you names, that would that would be unique. <laughs> for most of us, I guess. Yeah, but, but it wouldn't kick in that positive process like the 17th Sense does.
0: Okay. Excellent. Yeah, well, that's really good. So that was the peak technique, correct? Yeah. All right. Yes. All right, how about the uh, phantoms, I think, was the second one?
1: Yeah, this is another one that I studied a long time ago with Peter Farquhar. You see it a lot in fraud crimes. A phantom is something that's totally unavailable. But you think it might be real. Mm. So the kinds of processes that get kicked in are twofold. First of all, a phantom will make all the other options look poor, weaker, especially uh, options that are similar to the phantom. So in business, you'll see things that used to be called vaporware, where a product would be pre-announced. It doesn't exist, but looks like it's real, it's gonna come out in six months, maybe a year, whatever. It immediately sales for all the other products go down. Uh, there's been cases where uh, computer firms have announced products that they're going to come out and basically kill their <laughs> entire sales for a year as everybody's waiting for this new product. The other process that occurs with a phantom is phantom fixation. Uh, for fraud criminals, what they will oftentimes do is they'll talk to you on the telephone, And they'll find out the things that you're interested in. So if you're interested in a given cause, or you're interested in you're worried about not having enough money, or you're worried about your grandchildren. Some kind of they'll profile you to find out your needs. And then they'll develop a a phantom product that appeals to those needs, a you know, gold coin investment, a special other kind of investment. Uh they want charity that'll save the gray wolves. Whatever, whatever your needs were, and then that phantom will be told in terms of a story. No one else has ever had these gold coins. They've been at the bottom of the sea, where they've been there, untarnished by time. Nothing. There's no coins at these grade. This grade. So it's hyped out. Once you get hooked onto that phantom, then you're on to the ride for the fraud for the fraud crime. Uh You you do you know you send them the money uh, they keep you on the hook and so forth. Now they can also have a positive side. Um You know, the, setting these kinds of goals, especially if you can think of a way to get to the goal, is fundamental to any coach. You know, what is the goal that we can achieve, and how do we get there? And getting uh, you know players and, and staff and ever and fans and, all, uh, and so forth buying into that. Is a very important part of
0: of motivation. Absolutely. Um, yeah, this is excellent. Um, how about the um, projection tactic? These are all very
1: projection useful. tactic. Yes. Um, this is uh, you see this quite often these days uh, in political campaigns. It's also a staple of dictators, and that is, if I want to get away with a misdeed, the best thing I can do. Get off, seen as off the hook is accuse somebody else, like you, Ben, of doing exactly that misdeed. Mm-hmm. So, an example. This is the historical example that gave us this research that I did with Derek Rucker a few years back. The um, before Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia, Poland, he accused them of aggression, accused them of, of threatening German soldiers, German citizens, excuse me, in Poland. There was even a a, a campaign propaganda film called uh, The Campaign in Poland that accused the Polish people of being aggressive. Well, notice what happens. Hitler's the one who's being aggressive here. He's the one going into another country um, with his military. However, what happens is because he's accused Poland of doing this, they're in a sense uh, uh, on neutral. He's neutralized it. The world is now discussing: well, who's really the aggressor here—Poland or Germany? And because Hitler is the one making the accusation, he looks like, oh, he's the one that's concerned about yeah. needless aggression, right. not Poland. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is a very common tactic. Um, so, for instance, in the Korean War. Um, there were some illnesses brought in by Chinese and the North Koreans, and so what did the North Koreans do? Accuse the Americans and, and you know our allies of uh, germ warfare. Yeah. And that's the reason for the illnesses. Wow. When it was their own um, their own squad <laughs> that was yeah, doing it. Yeah. Right. Uh, it gets used a lot in uh, in uh, con crimes. One of my favorite examples is there was a, a, a shell game worker out of Denver, and then he went up to Skagway, Alaska, named Soapy Smith. And he, would take, he and his gang would take people in the shell game, Monty and others, other kinds of games like that. And when somebody complained and went to the police, Soapy would then accuse them of doing the fraud and ripping him off. Uh, This then created a a lot of confusion. The police wouldn't know what to do. And eventually, um, you know, the the person that wanted their money back gave up and left town. Wow. So, uh, in our experiments on this, um, we found that it it worked. What we would do is we would set up uh, vignettes where people watched others um, engaging in Misty and then accusing others. And we always got the same effect uh, the person who was the projectionist who would accuse others of, of the misdeed, they were always seen as more innocent. And the person that, that they accused, and also just, sometimes just bystanders that just happened to be a part, you know, part of the story, they would see, be seen as more, uh, more guilty of the misdeed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We actually had a, couldn't find a way to turn it off. And, and one of the more interesting ones, we... Um, We asked people, well, you know, suppose somebody um, made up a story and falsely accused somebody. Do you think that would, would um, you know, alert people that there's something funny's is going on here? And when we asked them that way, people could see through the protection tactic. They knew, you know, most of us know the story of, you know, the... the the uh, uh, sister that accuses the brother of stealing the cookies. Mm-hmm. Most of us know those kind of stories. And they said, well, yeah, I'd th- I wouldn't fall prey to that. Even though uh, three minutes earlier they had just fallen prey to it.
0: Mm. Yeah, this is somewhat childish, but for some reason, when you're speaking of this, I think of the, uh, the saying, you smelt it, you dealt it. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember yeah. that phrase too. Yeah, so I grew like, up in Virginia, I guess. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, just putting the, yeah, trying to blame somebody else before and putting the focus on them to make it seem right. Yeah, so that's, that's, exactly, that's yeah. exactly right. And I'm amazed at how well it works. Yeah, that's, okay, very interesting. How about the one in five?
1: Yeah, this is one that came from my fraud crime days. Uh, and it's the only time I ever got 100% persuasion in a laboratory. Mm. So the fraud criminal, uh, it's not a popular one right now, but back in the 90s, this was a real popular one that the fraud criminals would use as a way to take, uh, bring people in as a kind of an intake scam so you can get on their list so they can you know, pitch you on the next uh, next scam. And they would call you up or send you something in the mail that says you've won one of these five valuable prizes: you know, a trip to the Bahamas, a new Lexus, fifty thousand dollars in cash, a Van Gogh lithograph, um, uh, you know, a, a, a trip to, to wherever. Yeah. To simply get your prize, all you have to do is call uh, and give us you know call in and give us this money. And the money was usually small, about seventy-eight to one hundred and fifty dollars, uh, just to cover taxes and shipping or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Of course, no one ever won the prize. But if they didn't win the prize, it was the Van Gogh lithograph, which sounds like you know some expensive artwork of Starry Starry Night, but you know it could be just a Xerox copy of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If anyone won, well, we did the same. We took that same approach and did it in our laboratory. At the end of another experiment, students were told, well, your name just came up. You've won one of these valuable prizes, and we've scaled we scaled back the uh, you know the things to you know a, a gift certificate at the mall, a multicolored colored university mug, uh, a, a, a free camera, whatever. Yeah, I can't remember the exact five. And then all you have to do is claim your prizes and stay in our lab for two hours writing essays. Yeah. Well, we had 100% of the students uh, say, yeah, I'll take that deal.
0: <laughs> Interesting.
1: <laughs> it was the highest persuasion rate I ever got. Wow. In the control condition, I think, you know, it was like 20% or something along those lines. Wow. Um, <clears throat> it was, uh... That was, uh, you know, and it was so high, we figured, well, <laughs> why is that happening? You're getting a, a number of, of processes. One is that phantom fixation we talked to about earlier wow, man, I won a prize. And the other is, okay. um, you know, there's not a lot of scrutiny of the of the, of the case. In our case, a multi-colored uh, university mug. you know, it sounds like a nice ceramic mug that you would get at the at a bookstore. But in our case, it was a, a Dixie cup that we had doodled on with, with the university
0: logo. Wow. Oh, so. <laughs> Did, uh, have you ever tried that again? Did that work a second and third
1: time? Yeah, we did. We did two studies, and we've got a hundred percent in both of them. and oh That goodness. was um, that was the extent of the research on it. Okay. I know in the real world, um, the estimates for how how, uh, how many people um, will fall prey to this range from about ten to thirty percent. Usually, what happens on a fraud crime like this is when the first people who use it first get, starts getting used you get a high rate, and then you know people hear about it and uh, the rate goes down.
0: Yeah. Well, wow. Okay. Um very interesting. How about the last uh this last one that you have alter casting. casting. Yes. That seemed
1: interesting. Yeah. So um alter casting is a whole general set of of persuasion tactics. Well, what I do is I I I as the influence agent. Try to put you in the role that will make you best. That makes it best for reception of my message. Okay. And and um, in the work we did, you know, there was a a, a number of common roles that, that that people put in. In terms of the way I teach it, just to give you a feel for this, what I would do in class is I would. Um, sit down and, you know, as part of the lecture, I'd give us a long-winded definition of alter casting as, you know, putting people in different roles. And it was very technical. You know, went on for about 30 seconds of technical definition. The students would then sit there and stare at me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To which I would then say, would you like an example of alter casting? Of course they would, because they just got this long-winded, uh technical definition that made sense, yes, uh, although technically it was right. <laughs> <laughs> I said, fine, everybody get out a piece of paper and t- write down the words social role. Yep. And students would all get out their paper, get out their pens, and write down the word social role. What I just, and I said, there's your example.
0: <laughs> of Walter <laughs> Wow!
1: Because I I put myself in the teacher role, right? Yeah, and they are. The and last what last role were
0: students the students in? Students. The student role. Yeah, right. Wow! And okay. so
1: once they found themselves in that role, what, what do you do in that role? You, you I, as a teacher, a teach. I tell you to take notes. You take notes. Yeah. You course. write down social role.
0: That is so, and that is great. So, a couple things on that. Um, first thing it makes me think of is Carl Jung's uh, personas, right? Right. And so, I don't know if you can speak to that at all. I don't know how much research. I'm sure you've done a bunch of research on yeah. him, but um,
1: so, you know what we what I do is uh, less on Young, but more on the kinds of social roles that are common in society. In, in uh, and all, some of them are common across the board in in, so- in societies. You know, others are tailored to a specific, you know, situation or culture or group. So, some of the real common ones is I take the role of the authority that puts you in the role of agent. Mm -hmm. Another one that's very common is I'm your friend. And as a friend, I give you advice and you listen. A third would be uh, one that's kind of interesting. You You often don't see this as a way of persuasion but I take the role of being dependent on you, that I need your help. So in teaching this, we have a little video clip of a fraud criminal, and he, would, he did his script, and he would take different roles. The first time he comes on, he comes on as a young kid, and, he says, and he's talking to a senior, he says, I'm, I'm really nervous here, this is the first time I've ever had anybody win the big prize, uh, oh, I'm, really, I'm really happy for you, I'm really nervous. Uh, can I put my boss on? And so he puts his boss on, which is himself, doing an imitation, kind of a British accent. I was executive vice president here. Congratulations. <laughs> then he comes on as, again as a young kid. Uh, really nervous here. Uh, I've never had the boss come down like that. Yeah. He says, look, well, I gotta have one more person talk to you. It's my photographer. He's going to be coming out to take pictures of you. And so he says, "Uh, your name's Smith? My name's Smith, too. Congratulations. I'll be out to take your picture. Now, notice he's played three different roles that put the the victim, the senior, in three different roles. So when he was the executive, he was the authority. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the procedure we have, ma'am. That's what you have to follow. Well, that's a perfectly normal command to give by somebody who's in a role of authority. Mm Mm-hmm. As a friend, he'd come, wow. I wish I would've won that big prize, you're really lucky. Well, I'd sign up in a minute for it. And he can give that kind of advice. The really interesting one is when he plays the young kid. Notice that the senior, the target of this scam, is now put in the role of being that kid's helper. If, he does, if, she, if they don't go along with the scam, they could cost this young kid his job. He needs them to do that. Mm. So he can bring all three of those pressures on at the same time. Wow. Or different times as, yeah, it, yeah. as, a, as a scam unfolds. Okay. The, the, you know, alter casting is just a, a core basic um, a way of, uh, you know, the core basis of, of oftentimes how we interact. Mm-hmm. So if I'm a coach, I want to be thinking, what kind of roles am I taking? Yeah. What kind of roles am I putting, you know, my players in? Yep. Yep. Are they, you know, going to be antagonistic to me? Will they see me as a leader?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Will I have enough leadership to call on? Uh, it's used to when I to call on the right situation, or am I, you know, putting them in, you know, roles that they, you know, they feel uncomfortable about mm-hmm. and I'll rebel against? think you know think carefully about that.
0: Yeah, I totally agree and I think um, you know, one of the you know, we're big we we believe that uh, you know, we're all about leadership development and so part of the way I'm seeing what you're communicate to me is how powerful like you said the roles are and how powerful it can be when you put somebody in a new role, there's a new behavior and there's right. a, there's a whole new way and lens and perception in which they're going to now enact certain behaviors. And so that's, so I'm taking a lot from that and especially with how powerful roles can be. And also, you know, if, if, if you're constantly the one that's in charge, um, you're in that coaching role, what, I mean, what could you do to kind of step aside sometimes and allow other people to rise and fulfill almost like a coaching role to get uh, more, more of a maturation or maturity from the players, and all sorts of different things. So, I think there's a lot there to unpack, for sure.
1: So that's really- yeah, I agree with that. You know, first step is making you know conscious choices. You know, uh, just don't act. Uh, act. You know, understand that you're you're going to be putting people in roles. Yeah. And you you, you know, now oftentimes they they're going to need to... you want other people to step up for leadership.
0: Right. Absolutely.
1: I tell you how. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Mr. Branch Rickey, who hired Jack Robinson to play baseball. Okay, <laughs> big fan of his. Yeah, and I can tell you how he did the the leadership. He wanted uh, Pee Wee Reese to step up and help Jack Robinson come onto the team and step up and deal with the prejudice. Mm-hmm. And so the way he did it was he got a biography of Eisenhower. And Pee Wee Reese had served in World War II in our military, and so Pee Wee's coming back from the war, and Mr. Ricky brings him in and, and uh, to his office, has a nice little chit chat with him, you know, talking about Robinson and so forth. And he said, Pee Wee, I've got this book for you about uh, our Commander in Chief Dwight D. Eisenhower, and that's the end of the conversation. Pee Wee Reese goes home. He goes through the book, and Mr. Ricky had circled everything about leadership in the book for Pee Wee to read. That's how he put him in that role,
0: mm.
1: uh, so he would stand up for Jack Robinson.
0: Wow, that is great. Did you was that in the um, was that was that in the movie at all? How did you know about that story? Was that uh,
1: no, it? Wasn't in the movie. Okay. <laughs> the movie took a little bit of uh, artistic license, and especially in ways I didn't really think was that good. Yeah, uh, but you know what happened was uh, my wife and I did some work on how Mr. Ricky hired Jack Robinson and the principles that he used in terms of, of of bringing him on board and dealing with you know the kinds of issues that, that he had to deal with. Uh, the best book on it is a book by Jules tygel T Y G I E L, and um, it's called Baseball's Greatest Experiment. Oh. So that's the best book. I I don't know if this story's in there. Pee Wee Reese gave a uh, uh, bio- kind of a, a reminiscence to uh, NPR, some some organization like that, and that's where I believe I got this from. Oh, that's excellent. Uh, if I recall this particular
0: story. Yeah.
1: But, uh, you know, we studied it, and I ended up, uh, I have a little lecture on it, on how, how he did it. Okay. And uh, along with a couple of papers that we had
0: written. Well, I love that. I can't tell you how valuable those uh, you going into those five tactics were. That's I. I pulled out a couple things that are like immediately useful for me and some of the stuff that we're doing on right. our side with Captain's. You know, the
1: side was is Mister Ricky uh, sized up Pee Wee and understood he had you know the character and the courage to perform as a leader. And he, and then in fairness, and Mister Ricky uh, definitely wasn't afraid of that. And he said, well, how do I make that happen? How do I enable it? How do I make sure that he understands his role in the team?
0: Yeah. So good. All right, so what I'd love to know, because I've got a list. I've probably got 20 more questions I'd love to get to, and I do want to respect. I know you have your magic shows and practices to get to. So I'll probably ask just two or three more. um, And then, if possible, maybe have you on in another five to six minutes if you have time. Absolutely, Ben. This has been amazing. uh, For
1: me, Influence is one of the most, is the most important, one of the most important uh, processes yeah. we have in our society. Yeah, right. And, you know, if we don't know how to use it, become hopeless.
0: Yes, that's it's, so good.
1: You know, it's self-handicapping. Right. It, it, uh, you feel like, the, you know, I can't accomplish anything. Yeah. And on the other hand, if everyone's using it in ways that are um, just damaging our relationships, that's not good either. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm eager to discuss, uh, you know, the effective but ethical use of influence any day of the week you want.
0: Um, any any new any new models in terms of uh, and, and let me ask this quickly beforehand is that so there's the social influence piece and then there's behavioral social science and then behavioral sciences are though I'm sure they're mixed in together. Are there distinct differences between the two? No,
1: I don't, I don't tend to uh, okay. see distinctions between the yeah,
0: two. Yeah, I didn't either, so um, I'm just wondering if...
1: You know, social psychology covers... Uh, there's behavioral compliance techniques, like foot in the door, where I get you to make a, a small commitment and then ask you to... And then you do a, a larger commitment. Yeah. So those are, are pure behavioral techniques. There are other things where I establish, for instance, through altercasting, my source credibility... And that allows me to then be more persuasive in general. Mm-hmm. So there's a wide variety of, of, of tactics and techniques. Some you know, focus on behavior, some focus on thoughts. Uh, typically if you focus on behavior, people bring their thoughts in line anyway. Yeah. So you you'll you you change uh, you change the uh, the minds after the, the hearts, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't I tend not to make those kind of distinctions. For me what's okay. important is you know, with uh, the the technology of influence, the social influence, 107 ways to persuade, for instance, that you think carefully about each of those tactics and what what would be the the most useful, most effective,
0: and also the most ethical. Yeah. So there seems to be, like, there, you're, you have a lot of knowledge, which has been great. I'm still going through the papers you sent me about more of the tactical things, uh, very explicit things that you can do. Um, there's also behavioral models, like the theory of planned behavior, I guess, would be one. Um, right. uh, or, like, I don't know if Le- Levin's equation, it would be considered a model or not. But right. what what um, what would... Can you name some on the top of your head if you have some that are like the top three or four to really that have that have come out recently or are your, are your favorites? Uh, anything that you now, can talk to those? Um, there's certain models
1: that have been developed, like for instance, the health belief model in uh, for for understanding when somebody will stick with a, an exercise regimen or a diet or whatever. And those are very helpful for that specific domain. Yeah. So for me, um, what I try to do. Is um, understand any given uh, situation where I, w- I want to change in terms of centers of gravity. Now, this is uh you know after nine uh, eleven I uh, I had the great uh, fortune to be asked by our military to come work yeah, yeah. and help them understand influence. Yeah. And well, I thought I was you know they were calling on me. I actually, I think I learned the, the most. I learned that's the concept of center of gravity, yes, which I'm sure you're yep. familiar with, with, I, Klaus, with yeah, within the with the last... which everything flows.
0: Yep, yep.
1: And just like in a military campaign, there's certain centers of gravity, like you know, controlling the airspace. In any given influence campaign, you're going to have those similar kinds of centers of gravity. And so it's helpful to recognize those in any situation that you're facing. Mm-hmm. And what do I need and how do I change those? How do I uh, approach those? Now, in some cases, like, for instance, with the health belief model, which talks about, you know, the person has to have a sense of self-efficacy that they can actually do the, um, the exercise or follow the regimen. Yeah. You know, the, that health belief model has worked out those centers of gravity for you. So, so those are very helpful, uh, you know, models when you want to go change in that area. Yeah. Other areas, like when we worked on the fraud crimes, uh, it hadn't been done yet. And, of course, I've written stuff in terms of uh, public diplomacy and information warfare, uh, what the Centers of Gravity will be.
0: Yeah. No, those are great. And, yeah, the Center of Gravity thing is something mm-hmm. that recently has come down. We had, uh, we've had had a couple mm-hmm. people come on and really talk more about about that because I think it's obviously – uh, pretty central, so to speak, of uh, yeah. you know what we're what we're trying to do here, and it's a good good model to have um, as well. So uh, let, let let me have. I got three more questions. They'll be like fast, faster, uh, okay, faster. I'll, I'll, We'll be just a lightning round. Yeah, Go this <laughs> this is it. Yeah, this is it right here. So, would you agree that fact does not equal truth?
1: Facts do not equal truth. Uh, I don't know about that. Okay, depends on how it's defined. Okay, great. Um, I think that the. Uh, facts don't
0: necessarily equal people's perception of the truth okay excellent good insight what is what is your favorite book for persuasion yeah uh, let's do persuasion yes. or just in it's general That's an, an old cool. classic
1: by a guy named Wallace Carroll called Persuader Parish Persuader Parish Wallace mm-hmm. Carroll was um, one of the leaders during World War II of our information campaign to counter Hitler. And Persuader or, or, or Perish is his memoirs written just after World War II. And in it, I think it's the single best book I've ever read on competitive influence. So a lot of influence, you know, I'm just trying to convince you to give to the heart fund or whatever. In this case, I've got an adversary Wallace Carroll's adversaries, Goebbels and Hitler, and they were, you know, they were trying to persuade, and they were trying to manipulate, and Wallace Carroll had to respond, and this is the book that tells you how he did it.
0: Love it. That's excellent.
1: He, when you read it, there'll be a lot of details it's about issues that may be forgotten in history. Uh huh. But you will understand what he had to go through, and how he responded. Oh, uh, that's, so, that's so uh his, his counterpart for the Brits produced a similar set of articles, Richard Crossman, um, that are also equally good.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, I will definitely be checking that out. And then my last question for you is just your favorite quote. Something that <laughs> is a great driver uh, for you. If you and- want to understand the world, change it you want to understand the world try to change it i actually wrote that down i think it was in your book or it was on one of your videos so i'm glad you hit that that's perfect i think it's also on my facebook page (laughs) yeah it makes me think of uh you know you write to think teach to learn this idea like just taking an active approach to problem solving just makes total sense so
1: yeah you don't really understand something until you've you know you've gone in and Try to change it yeah it makes total um, you sense. you can like, get the diagrams and all that you want, but yeah uh, it, it may not be well, uh, it may not be as you've diagrammed it
0: out yeah <laughs> couldn't agree more well, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. it's been a, really a pleasure I've taken a lot from it. I know my, our audience uh, will too, and we would love to have you back on um, i I didn't even get to uh, you know some of the really interesting questions, so maybe in the future, if you have time, you know would we'd love to talk to you again.
1: You bet, you bet. I, I really enjoyed it, Ben, right. and I, and I appreciate everything you're doing.
0: All right, thank you. I right, talk to you soon, hopefully. And uh, best of luck in your, your magic shows.
1: You bet, you All bet. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the night. So. Appreciate it. All right.
0: Bye. Thanks for listening to the Captain's Coach Podcast with Ben Smith. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review on iTunes and check out our website at captainscoach.com. Join us next time for another edition of the captain's coach podcast. For those of you that are still listening in, I've got another bonus for you. Um, unfortunately this was one of my favorite parts of the show and it had gotten deleted, but I was able to capture just the last couple minutes of, uh, the conversation that Anthony and I had in regards to the ethics of influence, which was just just a really interesting conversation and one in which I've thought a lot about recently. uh, When you have a lot of people who feel like they have the moral high ground, um, who who says that uh, influencing behavior um, and manipulating is is right or not. So I just was, uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to get back on the horn with him to talk with him about this topic and so that we can actually record this for everybody to listen in on. So here is Dr. Anthony Canis just uh, for a couple minutes discussing uh, how important and powerful influence is and why it is ethical.
1: To, uh, you know, to develop a consensus on something. There's not a lot of other choices other than force. Or, you know, accepting that uh, somebody's genes made them king. In our society, in a democratic society, it's all about argument, debate, and discussion. And that's what how we reach a consensus. So, uh, for me, it's important to understand that that's a, a core process of any democracy. And therefore, we need to think carefully about what is the kind of fair persuasion. For me, things that get us discussing, arguing, debating revealing information, those are positive aspects of persuasion, and I like to see uh, our rules, our norms, and so forth promoting it.